You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, all right. Man, that extra hour of sleep made us extra talkative this morning. I love it. It's great. Go ahead and make your way back to your seats. Good morning. My name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you didn't notice, we had our annual turn from summer heat straight into winter this week. So I hope we're all ready for that. My wife, Christy, uh, she doesn't believe in indoor heat. So uh, pray for me and the kids, please. It's going to be a long winter in the Clements household. If you have old jackets to donate, you can drop them off out front. Just kidding, but I do have a funny story about how we managed our thermostat the first year we were married. Uh, every single time I walked by it, I'd turn it up, and then she'd walk by and she'd turn it down <laughs> for about a year. Uh, then I decided I'd take a picture of it and post it on Instagram to publicly shame her. <laughs> and that actually backfired on me because she was proud of that 61. <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't break that thing, but... Uh, we've compromised now. We still keep it cold. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, we are covering the life of David as a church, uh, and everything up until last week was going really, really well for him. We looked at how he was an example of trusting God and some of the reasons why he was called a man after God's own heart. But then last week, things hit the fan. Last week, we talked about the darkest moment of David's life where he forces Bathsheba to have sex with him, then has to kill her husband Uriah and others to cover it up. And to make matters worse, it seemed like he got away with it because he was the king and he had the power to make that happen. And as I said last week, but I think we need to hear it again, our reaction to David's massive fall into this aggressively destructive sin should not make us wag our heads at him and some kind of self-righteous disgust. If we do that, we are missing the point entirely because David was the best of us. He was more trusting of God in dire circumstances than many of us have ever been. So when we hear about this fall, our response should be, oh my gosh, if he was capable of that, how much danger are we in? If I face the right circumstance that expose my weaknesses, what am I capable of? This should be terrifying for you. But I'll tell you what's most terrifying for me is the fact that he went along with it. David did not come to his senses on his own and say, oh my gosh, what did I do? I need to repent about this. But he went along with it. His heart was hardened by his sin, and he covered it up, and he went on about his business. This is how Hebrews 3 states this idea. Hebrews 3, verse 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what happened to David. He was hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. His heart was once trusting and reliant on God, but it became evil and unbelieving and hardened, dead to the prompting of God's Spirit. 
So the enemies that we are up against, Satan and the deceitfulness of sin, are powerful ones that we should not take lightly. Because if that happened to David, it can most certainly happen to you and to me. We are all prone to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, and we are all complicated and intricately broken beings, sometimes in ways we don't even understand ourselves. We all have particular blind spots and areas of our heart that we just can't see clearly at all. One of the first sermons I ever preached was about uh, the fear of man or idolizing the approval of other people. And the reason it was one of my first sermons was that I have a long-standing battle with that sin tendency. I knew that I sometimes do things for the wrong reasons and I care too much about what others think of me. But then a while ago, something happened that, that opened up for me a whole new layer of how blind I can be, even to something that I'm partially aware of. Because for most of my life, I was the type of person who had value for you know, Christian counseling, but for myself, I thought I'd probably never go. Then some changes in our life happened that uh, changed that quickly, and I decided to go see a trusted Christian therapist. And I'll never forget this one moment that happened. I was sitting in my, my former counselor's office with my wife, who is also a therapist. That's tricky if you were wondering. And we were talking about something in my family of origin, and my counselor asked me this question. He said, he said Brandon, what, what emotional needs do you sometimes try to get met through ministry? And when he asked that, I was like, what? I mean, I was just completely dumbfounded. It was one of the most exposing moments of my life. And I realized that I should know the answer to his question, right? But I didn't. It felt like he asked me, hey, what's two plus two? And I couldn't find the answer. I was just like, uh, I, I don't know. So I just had two therapists sitting awkwardly at me as I sat in silence. So naturally, I said, what emotional needs do you try to get met through therapy, Larry? <laughs> Let's talk about that. Just kidding, I didn't do that. I just stared blankly. And over time, I realized that part of my particular sin tendencies and personality wiring and background is that I don't always have a strong sense of self. And I was listening to a podcast one time about my personality type, and one of the descriptions was, I'm okay if you're okay. And I was like, ugh. Ugh. Sometimes I unhelpfully focus on others' needs at the expense of my own, and sometimes even cease to know that I have needs. Thus, my counselor's response or my response to my counselor's question was, of course I know what an emotional need is, but I don't know that Christy does, so can you explain that to her real quick? And for me, putting voice to the word no or expressing legitimate needs has been like learning a new language. That has been a blind spot for me that's a cocktail of sin issues and fear of man and personality wiring and uh, approval idolatry and family background and all of that I have no hope of seeing on my own. It's come out in my marriage and my ministry. I don't know how many times Christy has said something like, hey, Brandon, do you know that you are over-functioning here because you care too much about what other people think about you? And I'm like, la, 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 la. 
But if I'm not careful, I will sacrifice my spiritual and emotional health and the health of our family on the altar of ministry or idolizing the approval of others. And it may look very differently for you, but you all have the exact same ingrained issues. Some of you may have the exact opposite problem I do, okay? You don't have any trouble expressing your needs. And some of your needs may be more like preferences. But you all have areas of your life where you're more easily deceived by sin and blind spots where you cannot see yourself clearly. You have no hope of doing so. Where you have, like David, maybe tricked yourself into thinking there's nothing wrong with you and that you didn't do anything wrong. And you may not have done the same destructive things that David did, but you have the same destructive heart that he did. Given the right power or the right opportunities, you might do the same or worse that he did. So this should be sobering for all of us. And the main point I want us to take away from today is this. We need the same help that he needed. So let's pick up where we left off last week, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, as you're turning there in your Bibles, I'd love to pray for our time this morning. Uh, Father, I, I pray for your help this morning. I uh, pray that uh, your spirit would um, just calm any distractions in our minds, uh, that we'd be able to hear from your word clearly, uh, that you would en- encourage and challenge and convict us in ways that only your spirit can, and that you would get around all of our many defenses about this topic and uh, allow your truth to settle in on our souls uh, like it needs to. And we need your spirit's help this morning because we certainly uh, cannot accomplish that on our own. So uh, please help us in all of the ways we need help. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. So Nathan was the prophet at this time. Uh, Think of them like God's mouthpiece. These were people who spoke directly uh, to God and spoke to others on behalf of God. And their role was to keep the nation of Israel from moral and spiritual danger. So often their messages were calls to repentance, not uh, telling the future necessarily. And you have one of the biggest moral failures in the history of the Bible that just went down with David and Bathsheba, and God sends Nathan to set David straight. David needs to repent, but his heart is hardened to God such that he is not self-correcting. He's not repenting in this moment. He has a huge blind spot that he's convinced himself isn't there So God sends him some outside help in the form of Nathan. Pick him back up. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. To pause there for a second, Nathan starts to tell David a story. And I once heard an author say this about stories. He said that we all have these little little minions at the front of our minds that are predisposed to dismiss or reject ideas that we don't like. So we think that when we disagree with things, we're just rationally discerning what's true and not true, but often we're actually just subconsciously accepting ideas that we like and rejecting ideas that we don't like. That's what the minions are doing. And this author said that what stories can do is they can trick those minions. They can sneak past the minions whose job it is to keep out ideas we don't like then plant a bomb in our brains and then sneak out <laughs> and wait for the bomb to explode. Now, as a pastor, I know that those minions we all have in our mind that keep out ideas we don't like are part of our sin nature, right? 
They are the outcome of our flesh nature that absolutely hates to be wrong. And I would imagine David's little flesh minions were on full alert at this time that he had convinced himself that he did nothing wrong. So Nathan tells him a story. Verse 2, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Ancient Jews lived in an agrarian society, so livestock was an important part of survival. And this poor man only had one lamb, and it was quite special to him. Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he, he being the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, his only lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the rich man who had many of his own flocks refused to use one of them to feed his guest, but instead he stole the only lamb the poor man had. Maybe some of you are starting to connect the dots here. You're like, man, this sounds familiar. But the coin is not dropping for David quite yet. Those sin minions are good at what they do, let me tell you. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's reaction is total shock, indignation, and judgment upon this man who would do such a vile thing. This guy deserves to die, he said. One pastor on this verse said this is David's conscience starting to wake up. He's starting to get a clearer picture again of what's right and what's wrong, but it hasn't fully sunk in or been applied to his behavior yet. He's still blinded to himself, even while he's declaring judgment on someone outside of him very clearly. And then the turn comes. This is one of the most memorable lines in Scripture. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. The the story snuck past the minions and planted the bomb, and this is where it explodes for David. The rich man who had plenty of sheep but took the only one a poor man had, that's you. Remember, this is Nathan speaking on behalf of God. So imagine David right now hearing Nathan's word as God speaking through him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Nathan is taking a massive risk here, because like any prophet in the Old Testament, speaking for God was sometimes dangerous. It generally made people hate you. And David here could have easily sentenced Nathan to death. But he has the courage to say what needs to be said to him. And in verse 13, we see David's response. 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David finally owns up to his sin. He finally sees his guilt and he owns it. This is David's light bulb moment. He was blinded by his own sin, by this destructive path, and someone rebukes him and it wakes him up and he can see again. The text goes on to say that David spent the next week fasting and praying before God. And we know that David followed through on this confession of sin by repenting of it because we actually have a record of this response in Psalm 51, which is one of the most famous psalms that was written after this. It's a psalm of repentance where he asked God there to have mercy on him and to wash him from his iniquity and created him a clean heart. He pleads for mercy from God and says, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. It's a beautiful and heart-wrenching prayer of repentance when you know the context for it. And next week, we're going to get into more details about the consequences of David's sin and and his response to all of this. But today, I just want to hit a few points from this story and and try to apply it all the way down into our lives as believers. So the first thing is this. You need Nathans in your life. You need Nathans in your life. If the guy who slayed Goliath and wrote much of the book of Psalms needed a Nathan in his life, so do you and I. Because you have indwelling weaknesses and sin issues just like he have, and you have bent and crooked places in your heart just like he had. You have blind spots and sin minions fighting off ideas you don't like and justifying your behavior just like he did. You would be foolish to think that you don't or won't need correction and confrontation in your life. You just don't have the perspective to see yourself clearly and accurately because none of us do. So this means there will be times in all of our lives where God communicates to us, gets our attention, and exposes an area of sin through other believers. I don't know if you caught the beginning of our passage today, but it said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent him, and the Lord will send Nathans into your life as well. Because every believer has the Holy Spirit inside of them and has different areas of strength and clarity and discernment. And one of the ways God speaks to us is through the Holy Spirit and others. And it's possible that your little minions don't like that idea at all, but this is a gift. An unspeakable gift that God uses every means possible to expose cancer and unhealth in us and root it out. And if we had a a proper perspective on what our blind spots can do to us, we would not only begrudgingly accept this idea, we would search Nathan's out. Instead of having a self-righteous posture that, that baseline assumes other people are idiots, we would go to others and say, man, I heard what happened to David, and he, like, wrote the Bible. That's terrifying to me. Can you help me? Do you see anything in me? I love the way Tim Keller talks about this. Here's what he says. He says, your only hope for growth is that you deputize some people. I love that. You look at them and say, I give you a hunting license. Tell me what's wrong with me. Show me what's wrong with me. Talk to me about what's wrong with me. I'm not just going to say I'm out of here because that's what users do, but not friends. I'm not going to get defensive I'm not going to get very, very demolished. I'm not going to get incredibly mad. 
I'm going to make it safe for you to see into my flaws and talk to me about it. Now, if we were honest about this idea, I bet a lot of us would say, yeah, I haven't done that. (laughs) I haven't done that. I love the idea of deputizing people, giving them a hunting license to speak into your life and agreeing beforehand that you won't get angry or defensive or demolished. And I love that last line, I'm going to make it safe for you to see into my flaws and talk to me about it. Because in our culture, there's a pop psychology term called safe people. And it can certainly be a helpful category, but like most things, it gets misused in a hundred ways. And I've only heard it used outward to describe people other than me. But Keller here is saying that for me as a Christian who really wants to grow, I have to commit to being a safe person to confront. I have to make it safe for you to tell me hard things. You have to commit to being a safe person to confront. And some of us are probably not safe people to confront. Some of us do not make it easy for others to speak into our lives. And some of us have nary a single person, yes, I just said nary, okay, who you have legitimately deputized and said, here you go. Here is your hunting license for my life. So we need this. Now, you may not know this, but uh, being a pastor has given me a lot of experience with this because uh, pastors tend to get confronted with all kinds of things. Uh, One of the general rules of thumb with all of this is that it tends to go better when you have a deeper friendship with the person you're confronting. But uh, one of the things our pastoral team has talked about before is you don't get to pick who your Nathan is, right? You don't get to pick who your Nathan is. So I've been confronted before by someone I didn't know well and wasn't predisposed to entertain or like what they have to say. But then we talk and I'm like, you know what? I don't like it, but you're right. You're right. I've also been confronted before where the complaint is is so ridiculous that it has no merit whatsoever and is based entirely off false assumptions. Some of those have been baffling uh, circumstances, but even when there's no merit to it, I still need to be gracious and suspicious of wrongdoing on my part. Because we teach in premarital counseling that one of the most important verses for a healthy marriage is 1 Timothy 1.15, where Paul says of himself that he is the chief of all sinners. So if we each see ourselves as the worst sinner in our marriage or in our life group or whatever, that means when people bring things up to us, my initial response and posture should be, I mean, I'm the worst sinner that I know, so you're probably right somehow. Probably right somehow. Let me weigh it out and take it to the Spirit, and you're you're probably right somehow. And that posture is really what we're getting after today. That's the most important part, that we suspect ourselves, that we know we have blind spots and we want to grow. And of course, not everything someone brings to you is going to be accurate. Of course. Some things may be unhelpful or way off base or based in sin in their life. But we can still make it safe for them to bring things to our attention and start with a posture of, you're probably right, somehow. Now, sometimes that will end up with, except I don't think you are in this position, in this situation, but I really appreciate you caring about me enough to bring this up. But many times it actually might end with, you know what, I think you're right, at least partially, and you're able to see yourself more clearly. 
And I know that some of you grew up in weird or unhealthy religious environments where you saw this in unhealthy ways, and that's not what we're talking about today at all. Okay, We're talking about brave, humble, gracious words spoken out of love for Jesus and love for you. And even in response to that, we've seen so many folks who will bail or get offended or gossip or all of the above the moment they receive a hard truth from someone that loves them. Here's a a quote from Jeremiah Burroughs that puts this on the ground level. This is so helpful. He says, you know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise? But if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise? So with the hearts of men who were full of themselves and hardened with self-love, if they receive a stroke, they make a noise. But a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. Oh my. (laughs) Some of y'all are like, I wasn't quite sure where I was until now, but I know now I'm the loud one. (laughs) I'm the loud one. I'll be making some noise up in here, (laughs) okay? When words of concern are spoken to me, that person's going to (laughs) know. They will hear and feel the effect of my noise, and others may too. But a self-denying, maturing Christian yields to God's hand, even through others, and makes no noise. They take it with a sober heart, glad that someone loves them enough to help them grow. They look at themselves with discernment and humility, and even if the concern is totally ungrounded, they still don't make noise. They calmly and maturely explain or clarify if necessary and thank the person for caring for them and then move on. And some, again, some of y'all are like, that's an option? Like, we can really do that? I'm certainly not saying I always do that, but it's totally an option through the power of the Spirit's maturing work in us. You can't control the legitimacy and the accuracy of the things people bring to your attention, but you can control your posture. You can control your attitude and your receptivity. You can be awake to the fact that you have blind spots and have no shot at seeing yourself clearly. And since we are stepping on toes today, I want to give you a general rule for this. The closer someone is to you, the more you should pay attention. The closer someone is to you, the more you should pay attention. Because the people that know you best are the best sources of information about you. So I need to be receptive to anyone But if Bailey or another of our pastors that I've done life with for over a decade now or Christy or someone who's been in life group with me for a long time brings something to my attention, I better listen up. So people who are married, your spouse is not God. They are not inerrant. Some of them might be immature. But if they are a Christian, they have the Holy Spirit. And they have likely, by far, the best view into your life and blind spots. So it doesn't make any sense for you to resist deputizing them. To be like, oh no, honey, you're not, you're not getting a badge. <laughs> Don't even ask. <laughs> Don't even. And I know it can be painful to have the person that you are closest to put their finger on something in your soul And you're like, no, don't see that. That's not true. You're an idiot. Let's talk about big sinner you instead. Big sinner you. 
But oftentimes their finger is God's finger. It's the finger of Nathan saying, whatever version of you are the man that you need to hear. It's a gift that will help you grow if you let it. Second point would be a lot quicker. Number two, others need you to be Nathan in their life. Others need you to be Nathan in their life. It's not just that you need love and correction and confrontation. Others need you to do this for them. And if not you, who will? In our culture, this whole idea is pretty non-PC. Uh, we have very little category for healthy biblical confrontation here. Uh, everyone here pretty much defaults to relativism, where there is no standard of right and wrong, and we all live out a you-do-you philosophy. So in our culture, the cardinal sin really is telling someone that they are wrong about anything. That's not cool here. So there's some cultural hesitation to this very biblical idea where we're like, this is not going to be very fun. However lovingly you do it, calling people to repent in any way is not the way to popularity in America. It is the way to getting flamed. You may get called all sorts of things. There are other barriers too. I would guess a very small percentage of us fall on the aggressive side of confrontation where you may do it too much or in an unhealthy, jarring way where your breathing is basically confrontation <laughs> to those around you. So to the maybe one or two of you here that are there, let's chill on that, okay? <laughs> let's chill on that. But for the rest of us, we struggle with this for a number of reasons. Comfort idolatry, fear of rocking the boat or, or changing the relationship, disinterest in dealing with the fallout. So we just choose to live with the other person's unhealth instead. Timidity or just plain old cowardice or all of the above. And I am guilty as charged for all of those, just for the record, man. I hate making people mad at me. It is the worst. I can be a coward in this and just choose to let them and me live with their unhealth so we won't have to rock the boat. And for those of you like me, that probably feels natural, like the path of least resistance. It also happens to be true that it is selfish and lazy and unloving and immature and unchristian and cowardly. So we can repent of that. And I'll draw your attention again to Hebrews 3, 13. It says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So our job is to look out for each other, to challenge and exhort and press on one another and say, hey, do you, do you see that? I'm not sure that you do. Hey, what's going on here? What's driving that behavior? Hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in weeks at gatherings or at life group. Have you noticed the way you've been speaking about your spouse? I sense bitterness creeping in there. Hey, I feel like I've noticed this thing, and, and I'm concerned about it. This is the God-given role we play for one another, and the people around you need you to play this role, even if they don't appreciate it at first, 
even if they don't yet understand, even if you're not 100% right all the time, even if it means your spouse is going to get mad and not speak to you for a few days until they hopefully come around and say, you might have a point. Others need you to point out the things they cannot see on their own. They have no hope of seeing them unless we play this role. And what a beautiful thing this would be if we became the kind of community that could both give and receive loving, gracious concern and correction. If we become the kinds of people where harsh truths land softly on us because we expect them and we know that we need them. It'd be incredibly countercultural, let me tell you that, because that is not happening out there. And it would be beautiful. So all of us need to work on being receptive to the Nathans God sends into our lives, no matter what form they take. And many of us need to work on being willing to be a Nathan and having the courage necessary to help others grow. And the next time you're faced with another believer bringing up a concern to you, I want you to remember this verse, Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The fact that they are willing to risk wounding you out of love means they are your friend, not the opposite like our culture would say. And the fact that they are doing this means they are being faithful to you. They are risking for your benefit. So instead of being defensive or angry, try to reframe all of this and instead make yourself say, thank you. Legitimately take that to the Lord and ask him what is true and what repentance looks like, or maybe ask other trusted Christians to help too and not people that are just gonna tell you what you need to hear, what you wanna hear. Let's try to resist the ever-tempting counter-assault. This is the default mode for many of us where instead of weighing the merit of their message, you start trying to poke holes in it. You dissect the tone and think about how they said it more than what they said. Some of you, even if you're dead wrong, you can still win the argument because you're just good at arguing. Instead, maybe don't do that. Ask God for the humility to not argue your way out of conviction. Just because you win an argument doesn't mean you're right. Just because your feelings are hurt doesn't mean you're right. Others of you, depending on your personality, will have a different unhealthy response where you'll basically just eat the correction. Just eat it. And those moments, you might turn into Forky from Toy Story 4. (laughs) You're like, I'm trash. I'm trash. I belong in the trash can. (laughs) So instead of arguing your way out of conviction, you woe is me your way out of conviction. You throw a pity party for yourself. And if that's you, Paul would call that worldly sorrow. Sorrow that's ultimately about yourself. And he would instead call you to what he calls godly sorrow that leads not to death like worldly sorrow, but to repentance and joy. So don't swallow confrontation or whip yourself with it. Instead, humbly receive it and let it lead you to repentance and freedom. But no matter what your tactics are, no matter what your avoidance strategies are, the goal is that we would all respond like David and say, I have sinned against the Lord. 
then go on to true, genuine repentance where we ask God to forgive and heal and cleanse and restore us and shore up areas of unhealth and weakness in our lives. Healthy confrontation doesn't take its full effect until you actually repent. Feeling grieved over sin or something you did is part of the repentance process, but don't stop there. Repentance means a change of heart, an acknowledgement that what you did or what you have been doing was wrong, and resolve in your mind by God's grace to turn from that. So I want to give you a heads up. Here's what's going to happen in life groups this week. We want to invite you to put this into practice Uh, And we know that we're not necessarily good at this, at giving or receiving it. And there's just a ton of hesitation and and fear. So I want to try to give you some training wheels for this. Uh, So the training wheels are an exercise that we call the love seat. A friend of mine came up with this uh, a few years ago in a group that I was in. And and I really liked it um, because it's kind of like the hot seat, but better and more loving, you know, because it's called the love seat. So what the love seat will be is that uh, you'll be separated into gender-specific time uh, and either with you know, all of the guys or all the girls or with a smaller breakout group if you have a big group, uh, you'll go around and each person will have a turn on the love seat. And the others will have a chance to bring up anything they might be concerned about, anything they may have noticed and are wondering if you have. And just to be clear, this is to be done in all graciousness and humility. None of us are God. So we are not giving dictates from on high here. We are humbly asking questions and pointing out things, not using graceless, authoritative language. So if you share for someone else, your language should be along the lines of, hey, I could be wrong, but I feel like I've noticed that you have a tendency to do blank. Do you, do you see that? Hey, it, it seems like you might uh, have an issue with this. Hey, I'm, I'm wondering if you're aware of blank. Gracious, humble, language. We all got that? If anyone uses this for a Wild West shootout session, we're going to have something to confront in you, okay? That is not going to happen here. And that's everyone's fear that someone's just going to walk in and be like, got something for you and for you and for you and oh boy, let's get started on you. That is not going to happen here. But knowing us, that won't be our problem at all. Our problem will be having the courage to speak up about anything. So let's remember that this is what love looks like. This is what you need, and this is what they need as well. And how will we ever grow if we don't get God's help and insight through others? And for some of you, I know this is probably going to be the week where you get sick. (laughs) Suddenly, you just made plans for Wednesday night. (laughs) Or whatever night your life group is. I I get that, but uh, let me tell you, you'll be missing out for yourself and for others. The goal is just for this to be training wheels so that it becomes to be uh, normal for us, normal in our daily lives and our families and our friendships and life groups where we can do this for one another without it having to be an ordeal or an event. And the times that I've been a part of this in the past have been really fruitful and gracious and meaningful. The first time I did this in a group that I led, after I told the group we'd be doing it the next week, I had this lady in her 50s come up to me almost in tears. And she was, uh, she'd grown up in very different church environments, and she was just like, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) Please, please don't do this. This will ruin everything that we have. And I convinced her that it would not be terrible, that we would not allow it. 
to be terrible. And afterwards, she absolutely loved it. She couldn't believe it. So becoming the kind of person and the kind of community that can give and receive these words in love is possible. So between now and your life group time this week, be praying for your heart, uh, that it will be receptive. Be praying for the hearts of others. Uh, Pray for what God might have you to say. Commit to seeing yourself as the worst sinner in your group and remove any log in your own eye first. If there's anything glaring in your life, go ahead and confess and own that first. Don't wait and see if anyone says it. Confront yourself anytime you can. This is meant for all of the things we can't see or won't see because we've been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But thanks be to God, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, we do not have to be hardened forever, amen? We all have the same heart that David did, but we also have the same savior he had. God has sent his spirit to awaken us, to save us, to point us to trust in Jesus for salvation and sanctify us. And because God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, he also sends his spirit to do deep surgery on us, on all of the broken and crooked parts of us. He's seeking to remove the cancer and rot that sin causes, and he often uses others to point out the things that are hardest for us to see. So let's try our absolute best to let him. Let's ask for soft hearts that don't make noise, for humble, receptive spirits. Let's remind ourselves above all that all of this is for our good and our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example that we see in David's life where he was confronted by someone that you sent to him about something that uh, he would not allow himself to see because he had been so hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I pray that would be sobering for us, that it would be uh, appropriately terrifying that if that could happen to him, uh, what danger are we in? I pray that you would give us the humility and the courage to uh, open ourselves up to this, to, uh, to know that we need this as well, that uh, we cannot see our, ourselves clearly, and that we need your help to see ourselves and to see our blind spots. Uh, pray that you give us a peace about this, that uh, you would just help us to see it as a gift and not as a burden. You give us humility. We need to uh, have soft hearts that don't make noise when we receive words of correction or even questions, God, but that our hearts would be receptive and soft and um, taking that stuff to you to ask you what is true and being 100% willing to own whatever it is. And we need your help with this desperately. Um, Man, our our hearts are just so set against this. Uh, So many things that are Uh, barriers to this that are in our hearts and minds even as we speak. And so we just need your spirit's clarity and humility and grace uh, to help us see this as a gift and to want it for our lives. And to trust you that all of this is for our good because you love us and want to grow us up into the maturity of Christ. And this is one of the means to get us there, to help us to not reject it. Love you so much. Amen.